Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Romans? Please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. Have you guys heard that idiom before? You can't see the forest for the trees? It's kind of a strange idiom, don't you think? I mean, first of all, there's that use of the word for. Who talks about for the trees? It's because it's an old idiom. It's, it's, it's actually from the Old English, for. This is at least 500 years old. And that in Old English, the word for meant because of. So really the idea here is you can't see the forest because of the trees. But that's still a little confusing, isn't it? Because isn't the forest made up of trees? Right? But that's the point of the idiom, isn't it? That's the point. Is that sometimes you get so focused on the individual trees, on the little details, you lose sight of the big picture, the big picture of the whole forest. It's too easy for us to fall into this error, isn't it? Of getting so encapsulated by the little details that we miss the forest for the trees. That happens in our relationships. It happens at work. It happens in, in, in just all kinds of places in our daily lives. We get so focused that we forget the big picture. We get so focused, we forget about even God sometimes and what he's doing, what he has done in our lives through the gospel, what he continues to do and what he will do. And perhaps one of the most significant places where we make this error is when we study Scripture. As we start our new sermon series, which we're starting this morning on the book of Romans, this is a particular challenge for both for the preachers and for the church that we would not lose the forest for the trees. See, there's great wisdom of going verse by verse through this book of Romans, that we would mine the text, each verse and each section, for all the wisdom that the Holy Spirit has placed there. Every part of this book is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we all would be equipped for every good work. But you see, as we focus on the trees of the text, on the sections of the text, we, we can miss the idea that Paul did not write this letter in a vacuum. He wrote this as part of a larger contextual forest of his entire letter to the Romans. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. And for that reason, as we start our series on Romans today, I want to start looking at, by looking at the entire book as a whole. In other words, my goal this morning is to preach a sermon on the entire book of Romans. And you're looking at your watch, you're going, God bless, Pastor. Right? But, but that's the goal. That next week we're going to start going verse by verse and section by section through this book. But today, I want to look at the book as a whole and the background of the book and, and the overarching themes of the book. And remember that this was a letter written by a real human author inspired by the Holy Spirit to write to a real congregation in Rome with real purposes, Holy Spirit-inspired purposes and themes that unite this letter as one contextual forest. So let's talk about the background of this letter this, this, that we call the book of Romans. It was written by the Apostle Paul. Almost everyone acknowledges that it was written by the Apostle Paul. For, for the very reason, the very first word in Romans is Paul, right? Right there, first word. Paul, who was originally named Saul, was born in Tarsus. Tarsus was a prosperous city what we know, in what we know now today as Turkey which was one of the centers of Greek learning in the Roman Empire. 
Saul was trained as a Jewish rabbi under Gamaliel, which is the grandson of the famous Rabbi Hillel. And so Saul was trained both in Greek philosophy and in rabbinical teaching. Saul became part of the Jewish sect of the Pharisees, who they were zealously committed to the law. In fact, Paul or Saul was so zealous that he tried to destroy this new sect of Christianity. Acts tells us that Saul went from house to house, dragging followers of Christ into prison. Actually, it's likely that because of Paul was so zealous to destroy Christianity that he wasn't going to listen to any Christian witness, so the Savior, Jesus Christ himself, appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus to confront Saul and bring him to repentance and salvation. And Saul, so after his conversion, would be called Paul, began immediately preaching the gospel of salvation of Jesus. He's preaching about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And eventually, while ministering in in a church in Antioch, the church sent Paul and Barnabas on Paul's very first missionary journey. This is around A.D. 47 to 48, which went through Cyprus, the region of Galatia, and back to Antioch. And then Paul would make two other missionary journeys through his years. Around 40, A.D. 42, 49 to 52, Paul traveled up through Macedonia, which is part of what we know today as Greece, through Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, Athens, and eventually had an extensive stay at Corinth, and then, he went, and then he went back to Antioch. And then finally, around 53 to 58 AD, Paul made his third missionary journey that's recorded in Acts. And that went back through Galatia and Ephesus, where he ministered for about two and a half years. And then back through Macedonia and Corinth and Greece. And then finally ending back at Jerusalem, where he brought this collection that we're going to see later in Romans that he'd been collecting for the, the poor in Jerusalem. It was near at the end of this very third missionary journey. After Paul's been traveling through these places, he's probably around around the area of Corinth, we know from Romans 15. It's around 55 to 58 AD that Paul writes this letters to the Romans. As we can show from this background, Paul had never been to Rome. He had never been anywhere close to Rome. But he heard about this Roman church, and he writes to this Roman church. Well, what do we know about this Roman church? What do we know about the city of Rome and the church there? Well, we know a lot about the city of Rome, right? It's the capital city of the Roman Empire. And when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, Rome was coming to the end of what would be considered the golden age of the Roman Empire. The golden age of the Roman Empire went from the reign of of Augustus to the reign of Nero. And so when Paul wrote this letter, it was around the, the, the time that Nero had just come to power or sometime in the middle of Nero's reign. Now, we know a lot about the city of Rome. We all know almost nothing about the church there. We we don't know anything about the origin of the church. We know it's not planted by an apostle. We know that Peter or Paul or none of the apostles went there until much later after the church was already established. The best understanding we have about this church is that it was founded most likely by Jewish converts to Christianity. These were Jews who were probably at Pentecost, In Acts 2, they heard the gospel, they got saved, they bring the gospel back home, and and they plant this church in Rome. And so from all understanding that this church began as a Jewish Christian church with Jewish practices and Jewish cultural practices in this church. And then there was a major turning point in this church around A.D. 49. That's when Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. Right? You see how this would affect the church? It's a predominantly Jewish church, Jewish Christian practices, and all the Jews are out of there, right? And we, we know about this expulsion. It's referred to in Acts 18.2. 
<laughs> when Aquila and Priscilla were part of those expelled from the city? Because it wasn't just Jews, but even Jewish Christians were expelled from the city. So now you have this church in Rome with no more Jews, with just some of the Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ. And so over the years then, this church began to reflect Gentile practices and Gentile culture. Well, after Claudius died, the Jews got to come back. But that created a problem in the church. Do you see the problem that was being created in the church there? Now there is one church with two very different traditions, with two very different cultures, with two very sets, different sets of preferences and practices, both trying to exist in one church. We see these tensions reflected throughout the, the letter of Romans. There's a tension between Jewish and Gentile Christians. We see there's an admonishment of Jewish pride in Genesis, or not Genesis, Romans 1 and 2. We see a confrontation of Gentile arrogance in Romans 9 through 11. We see a call for love and unity and considering one another in, in Romans 12 and 14 through 15. This is the situation in the church of Rome that Paul was writing to. Now let's look at the theme of this book. Let's look at the purposes. Let's look at what this book is about. Take a big picture look at the book. Why did Paul write this letter? What was the Holy Spirit-inspired purpose? Well, open there if you haven't already to Romans 1. Pastor Bob read this already, verses 8 through 15. You can look at there. I'm not going to reread it right now. But we start to see his purpose here as he sets this, why he wants to come to Rome. He can't come to Rome yet, so he's writing to them instead. He longs to come to Rome. He wants to minister to them with the gospel so that they'd be mutually encouraged by one another, Jews like Paul and Gentiles and both Jews and Gentiles together. And then, so he's talking about this desire and then Paul kind of diverts from this purpose. He's saying, I'm writing to you because I can't come and I'm writing you in this way. And here's the gospel. And for the next 15 chapters, Paul elaborates the gospel. And he kind of, in a way, forgets why he was writing. He at least doesn't tell us some of those situations why he's writing. And then turn to the very, actually, the second to last chapter, chapter 15. Flip over to chapter 15. And after talking about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, from chapter 1 through chapter 14, through the beginning of 15, we pick up there in chapter 15, verse 14, Paul kind of picks up from where he left off in chapter 1. He's saying, here's why I want to come to you. Here's why I'm writing to you. Let me talk about the gospel. And then he comes back to the subject of why he's writing. In chapter 15, verse 14, he says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you, here's why I wrote this letter, very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." So, so Paul tells us here why he's writing this letter, that he's reminding the church about this gospel that the whole letter is about, to, to both Jews like Paul and to Gentiles, to bring about this united church of both Jew and Gentile believers. And look what Paul wants from this united church. He's writing to both Jews and Gentiles, united in the gospel. Then look over a couple of verses at verse 22. This is the reason I have so often been hindered from coming to you, for now, since I have no longer any room for work in these regions where he'd been doing missionary work, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. 
So here's what he's doing. Paul's writing this letter as a missionary support letter. He's planning to go to Spain, but on his way to Spain, he's going to stop by the church in Rome to, 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 to edify them so that they can help him on his missionary journeys. But here's the problem. The church in Rome can't help anybody if they're not displaying the gospel from uni- being a unified church themselves. He wants to write to, to the Roman church that they'd support his mission to Spain, but in order to do that, they need to be a unified church for the glory of God. That's the purpose of these writing this letter. And so in order to unify the church, in order to, to, to grow and edify the church, in order to promote this mission to Spain, he's like, here's the solution of what you need to make all these things happen. Here's the theme of the book. I've already said it about 15 times. The gospel. What does the church need? How is the church edified? How is the church unified? How is the church motivated to Christian growth? How is the church stimulated to mission? Paul's answer, the gospel. The gospel. To meet all those purposes Paul had, he spends the whole letter of the Romans, from chapter 1 through chapter 15, to focus on the gospel. In fact, I know you were just there. Turn back to Romans 1. We're going to do some Bible clipping today. It's okay. Stretch out those fingers. But back in Romans chapter 1, which Pastor Bob read earlier, and I read again. This is really the theme verse that comes out of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, it's to both of you. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the message of Romans. That's what's going to meet the needs of the church. That's what's going to motivate the church to mission is the gospel. The gospel. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next however, Lord willing, weeks that we're going to talk about Romans. We want to focus on the gospel because that's Paul's focus. In fact, if you're visiting with us here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. This is a great week to be here. You're saying, I know, but you're giving a history lesson. Yes, but, but it's a history lesson to, to help understand what Paul's writing here is the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. That this letter is the good news from God to you this morning. This is God's good news. It's good news for us in a fallen world. It's the good news that, that God created us. But even though God created us, we rebelled against him. We did not worship him as God. We did not honor him as God. We worshiped ourselves. We worshiped our pleasures. We rebelled against the God of the universe. And that cosmic rebellion, that cosmic treason, is what the Bible calls sin, that we are guilty of cosmic treason. And I said, you may say, I thought you said this is good news. And it is. Here's the good news, that God sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life for us because we never could. And to die on the cross in our place as our substitute for our sin. He was punished for our cosmic treason in our place so that we don't have to. And he rose from the dead to offer us forgiveness for our sin. To offer us reconciliation to be made right in a right relationship with God. To become part of God's family. And that good news is that forgiveness is offered to you as a free gift. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you can deserve. It's purely a gift of grace. If you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's king, that he's God, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the good news in Romans is that you should be saved. If you turn from your sin, you confess in Jesus, 
then that salvation is, 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 is offered to you today. You, you, can, you can have that forgiveness of your sins today. If, if you want to know more, if this is good news you want to hear more about, please don't leave today without asking. We would love to tell you more about this good news of Jesus Christ. Ask the person who brought you. Ask any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary after the service. I would love to get to know you and answer any questions you have about this good news. This is the good news that defines Christianity. In fact, my Christian brothers and sisters this morning, this good news is not just for those who don't know Jesus. This good news is for us. Paul says this gospel is also for the church in Rome, for the church in Oakhurst. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. They needed a fresh unpacking of the gospel. We need a fresh unpacking of the gospel because we miss the forest for the trees all the time. We get so focused on so many other things about be, being a faithful Christian and living a faithful Christian at home and at work and at church. And sometimes we forget that what it means to be a faithful Christian is to live in light of the gospel. And so that's what we need Romans. That's why I'm so excited to cover this book. It's because the, the, the key to all of Paul's purposes for the church in Rome and the church at, at Oakhurst EV Free is found in the gospel. The gospel is the foundation for the church. The gospel is the foundation for the Christian life. The gospel is the foundation for all Christian mission and our purpose of our Christian life till Christ returns. That's why we need this book. That's why I'm so excited to dive into this book. So for the rest of our time this morning, what I want to do is just do a bird's eye view of this big picture of the book in the sense of what are the major themes that are running through it? What is it about the gospel that Paul emphasizes? What is the significance of this gospel in our lives individually and our lives together as a church? The first theme that we see in Romans is that the gospel unifies. The gospel unifies. I, I want to just walk through the book chapter by chapter here really quickly. The first three chapters, and you can follow along with me, Romans 1 through 3, the point of Romans 1 through 3 is that everyone is under sin. We're all sinners. We have all rebelled against God. In Romans 1, Paul points out how Gentiles are sinners. In Romans 2, points out that the Jews, if you think you're better, no, the Jews were also under sin. Even though they had the, the religion of God, even though they had the law of God, they were no more righteous than the Gentiles. In fact, Paul comes to the conclusion in Romans 3, when he quotes from the Old Testament, no one is righteous. <coughs> no, not even one. Everyone, no matter how religious you are or not, everyone is under sin in the same way, and everyone will be judged for their sin in the same way. The, the, the key word for Romans 1 through 3, actually the key word for most of the book of Romans is all. Just, just notice how many times all, as you read through Romans, how many times all pops out of the book. All. We are all under the same sinful condition. But then there's a turning point in chapter 3, verse 21. Look at chapter 3, verse 21 for, with me. I want to read these verses. We're still talking about us all, but it switches from all being under sin to, well, let's read it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Through the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And by implication, all are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his, his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, we're still talking about the all here, but before it was both Jews and Gentiles all are under sin, and now it's all had this free gift of grace for all who would believe in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you were born in a religious home or an unreligious home. It didn't matter if you worked so hard to live a moral life or you were the biggest heathen, immoral person that, that, <coughs> that your, your family knows. It doesn't matter. All are in the same condition and all have the same gift of grace offered to them. And so we start seeing in Romans 4, there's a switch. In Romans 1 through 3, there's two groups. There's Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. In Romans 4, there's one group, we. There's a switch to a we. From Romans 4 on, you start to see this comment of we. It's no longer a you and me, it's a we. We are all under grace together. Romans 4, we who have faith like Abraham are part of God's family. Not based on our ethnic backgrounds, but based on our faith in Christ. Romans 5, we have peace with God because we're no longer part of Adam's rebellious race, but we're part of Christ's righteous kingdom reign. <clears throat> uh, Roman, Romans 6 through 8, we are no longer slaves to Mr. Sin. We belong to, to Mr. Righteousness because we belong to Christ and have this new life of Christ that frees us from all condemnation. In Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8, we're going to see how that, that Paul personifies sin and righteousness like they're people, like they're masters. And he's saying you're going to serve one or the other. And Christ sets you free to be a servant of Mr. Righteousness. And then in Romans 9, we have this position before God, not because of our greatness, not because of how moral I am or how good I am or how worthy I am, but purely because of God's sovereign grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You see Paul's argument going through the book of Romans, these first nine chapters? If all of us are under sin, both Jews and Gentiles, and all of us are recipients of God's sovereign grace if we've come to faith, then what does that do to our consideration of one another? There's no longer a you and a me. It's a we. It's no longer a, yeah, you're, you're okay, but look at me. No, we are all recipients of God's grace. See, the gospel leaves no room for arrogance, no room for boasting with, uh, with one another, with, with fellow believers whether you're a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian, whether you're an older and mature Christian or a younger and zealous Christian, we are all recipients of God's sovereign grace. We have no basis for arrogance. We have no basis for boasting. Instead, this gospel should motivate us by seeing that we are unified with one another, that we are to love one another. <clears throat> and that's how Paul then continues through the rest of the letter. In the same way that Jews had no cause for arrogance against Gentiles, in Romans 9 through 11, Gentiles have no room for arrogance against Jews because God still has a plan for the Jewish people to, to work in sovereign grace in the Jewish people when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. <coughs> and then in Romans 12 through 15, Paul transitions from how the gospel affects our vertical relationship, right, and how he saves us to then how it affects our horizontal relationship with one another in the church. So we see in Romans 12, he says, therefore, in light of the gospel, 
We all love this verse. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We know that verse, right? We love that verse. But we often stop at that verse instead of keep reading of what's the context of what Paul's talking about. What does it mean? What does it look like to have our minds renewed? What does it mean to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? We have to read the rest of Romans 12. What does it mean to renew our minds and offer our bodies as living sacrifice? We recognize the church is one body. You see that there in Romans 12? That's where he goes next. Is that when we recognize the grace we've been given, then we show that grace with one another as we recognize we're all one body together. And then later in Romans 12, that, that God, we recognize that when God has transformed our lives with the gospel, that we love one another. Because then we look in Romans 13, we see that love is what fulfills the law. You see how he says, if you understand this gospel, yes, you're going to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Yes, you're going to have your minds renewed. And the way that that plays it out is by the way you have relationships with one another and the people of God. The, the, the Romans 14, we, we consider one another. We consider those who are weaker, brothers and sisters. We don't, we don't, we don't demand our preferences and our practices and, and, what, and, and what we're used to of our exercises of our Christian liberty and Christian freedom. We, we prefer the other. We make sure that we're not causing others to stumble. We welcome others as Christ welcomed us. And then all this leads to chapter 15. Look at verses, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We're just tracking through this book here. <coughs> Where Paul writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. You see how the gospel, we, God was the strong, we were the weak, and God bore with our failings, so then we have an obligation to bear with others who are weak. Let each, of us please his, uh, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. That's the gospel, right? He didn't please himself. He served us. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and accord with Jesus Christ Jesus that together you with one voice, one united voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see the argument here? Paul's saying that the gospel doesn't stay as an intellectual exercise. The gospel worked its way out in our relationship with one another. That we're all recipients of God's sovereign grace, that affects our relationships with one another. It's no longer a you and a me, it's a we, that we live in harmony with one another, welcoming one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Paul's point is that gospel reconciliation with God is inseparable from gospel reconciliation with the church. Our vertical relationship will affect our horizontal relationship. The gospel is not just about my personal salvation and my personal relationship with God. It's true that I am personally saved. I do personally have a relationship with God, but that's not all I have. If I do have a personal relationship with God, it works its way out in, in fruit where it's not just about me, it's about the we. It's about the way that we love one another. Now, the fruit's not the tree. We want to be careful here that there's a, there's a distinguishable difference between our vertical reconciliation and our horizontal relationship. It's not the same. I'm not saying that if you love someone else, you can get saved. They're distinguishable, 
but they're inseparable. This is huge in Romans. In Romans, Paul is all about connecting to the gospel and saying they're distinguishable from the gospel, but they're inseparable from the gospel. And that's what he's saying here, is that if we understand the gospel, that we're all sinners, and that we're saved purely based on sovereign grace, then we're going to see people differently. We're going to see especially those other sinners who have been saved by grace differently. And that's so different than our culture. You see, our culture would place an emphasis on dividing people and separating the differences between people. Our our culture would separate people, say, for the differences of of class or vocation, of the status that your job brings, or, or, or the status that your financial situation brings. Because if you are a harder worker, then you're going to have a better job, and you're going to have a better financial situation, and so you should, you should have more honor. That's what our culture would argue. But the gospel says, we're all under sin. Whether you work hard or you don't work hard, we're all under sin. We're all beggars in need of God's grace. There's no division in the gospel. See, our, our culture has a tendency to find things that we can boast in. Our, our culture loves to boast in things. It loves to boast in our national heritage, but the God, and, and that's what's going on with Jews and Gentiles here in Rome. But the gospel says we have more in common with Christians of other heritages, other ethnic heritages, other national heritages, Christians of other countries. We have more in common with them than we have of people that are just like us, fellow Americans of our same ethnicity. We have more in common because we're sinners saved by grace. Our, our culture values finding people with ideological commonality. You, you find people who think like you and who are in the same, sa- same stage of life as you and have the same preferences as you, and you group together with the people like you so you get in your own little bubbles. And the gospel says, we don't seek our own comfort. We don't seek to be with people just like us. We don't seek for people that have preferences just like us. We're to welcome others as God welcomed us. We were as far different from God as you can get, and God showed grace and reached out to us. And so we reach out to one another. We're to give up our comfort. We're to give up our preferences. We're to give up the things that that, that we think that that, that we need, even our rights for the sake of unity. That's the argument of Romans. For the sake of unity amongst the diversity of the body of Christ. Do you see how the gospel radically changes the nature of the church? That our unity is not based on our similarities, It's not based on our similar preferences or backgrounds or culture. Our our unity is based on our common identity as sinners saved by grace. And that works its way out in our unity, in our love for one another. That's the way the gospel works in Romans. But that's not the only way. Let me give you two other quick ways here. Two other ways that that the gospel works its way in the church here in Romans. (coughs) Secondly, so first, the gospel unifies. Second, the gospel transforms. In many ways, you can separate the the, the book of Romans into two halves. Chapters 1 through 11 make up the first half. Chapters 12 through 16 make up the second half. Turn over to Romans 12. Romans 12, 1, we we read this earlier, is the hinge passage. That present your bodies as living sacrifice passage. Well, look at the beginning of that. It says, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore. So, therefore... In light of Romans 1 through 11, I appeal you to you to live in a way according to Romans 12 through 16. There's a hinge between these two, two, two parts of the book. As we saw earlier, Romans 1 through 11, that first part of the book, talks about the gospel, the content of the gospel. What is the gospel, right? 
in this section is what, what theologians call the indicatives. You don't have to write it down. You don't have to remember it. But it's, it's basically indicatives means facts. These are the facts about the gospel. These are the truths about the gospel. This is the, the truth about the grace and the forgiveness of God. This is the truth about your identity in Christ. We love that stuff, right? That is wonderful. That is the facts that undergird our faith. But then in Romans 12 through 16, he shifts that in light of those, therefore, because of those truths, those facts, I appeal you to you to live in a certain way. So in Romans 12 through 16, we have what theologians call the imperatives or the commands. <clears throat> so in other words, in light of these truths, Romans 1 through 11, here is how you should live, Romans 12 through 16, that the gospel is not just an intellectual exercise of facts, it actually transforms our lives to live in a new way. That when you encounter Christ, when Christ saves you, you are no longer slaves to Mr. Sin, you are slaves to Mr. Righteousness. You have given yourself to Christ. He is your Lord, and your life is radically different because you're a follower of King Jesus. And, and, and just like we talked about unity, these, these, this, these commands, this transforming nature of our new life in Christ, they're distinguishable from the gospel, Right? It's not saying, if you live this way, then you will be saved. No, they're distinguishable. They're different, but they're inseparable. If you understand this gospel, if you really believe in this gospel, here is what your life will then look like. It's distinguishable, but inseparable. The gospel truth is inseparable from gospel transformation. And we need to keep that in mind as we're looking through Romans. That We need to remember that both the facts and the new life, they're both connected to one another. See, without the new life, without the imperatives, if we just camp out in Romans 1 through 11, we're going to be missing something because Christianity turns into just head knowledge. It's you know a bunch of historical facts or you know a bunch of theological facts, but it reduces Christ and his gospel to, to a history lesson or at worst a fairy tale where you say, that's nice, that's good, I like reading that stuff, but it doesn't really affect my life now. See, as we study Romans 1 through 11, we need to remember that if we really are believing these facts, then they're going to play their way out in our lives in this new life. And in the same way, when we get to the back half of Romans and we're focused on all these, these, these commands of this new life in Christ, we need to remember that if all we do is focus on those commands, Christianity becomes nothing but legalism. It's nothing but the list of do's and don'ts. Nothing but an alternate system of, here's my system of morality. So when we get to the back half of Romans in 12 through 16, we need to remember that these commands are grounded in the gospel. They're not about self-righteous ability of, yeah, look how many of these I can get done. It's, it's saying that they're grounded in the gospel. The gospel is what gives us the ability to live those out and those commands. Both parts of Romans are essential to the Christian life. Gospel truth is inseparable from gospel transformation. And here's what I want you to think about. Here's a takeaway you can take from this. Most of us prefer one or the other. Most of us would like to either be in Romans 1 through 11 or Romans 12 through 16. Most of us would either like to camp out on the truths of the gospel, identity in Christ and the truth of the gospel and all these, these wonderful truths, but sometimes have a tendency to neglect the holiness that that should produce. You may know the gospel, love the gospel, study the gospel, speak the gospel, but are you seeing the holiness of the gospel played out in that transformation of life? 
or there's some of us that we like to, to focus on those commands, right? We love to-do lists. We love those lists. Oh, Romans 12, there's like 15 things to do in there. Let's make up a list. Let's laminate it. Dip, 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 dip. Right? We love to do that. And, and how many things can we check off? And what do I need to do to be a good Christian? What do I need to do to follow God? But you're forgetting the gospel. You're forgetting the power that enables you to do those things. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you more prone to, 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 the, 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 just to focus just on the facts? Or are you prone to more focus just on the, the, the transformation obedience? In fact, if you go out to lunch today, ask each other. Which, one, which, which are you? Which are you prone to, to, to lean towards? Or if you're having dinner tonight as a family, ask each other. Are you prone to lean which way? And what can we do as we study Romans to correct that so that our life reflects both? Because they're really inseparable. All right, so the gospel unifies. The gospel transforms. One last thing, the gospel commissions. Let's remember why Paul wrote this letter. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans so that they'd be a participant from the Romans in his mission to Spain. In other words, as I said before, Romans, at its heart, is a missionary support letter. This is Paul's argument that they would understand the gospel so they'd be partners in his mission to proclaim the gospel. I want you to see this in two places, in the introduction and in the conclusion of his letter. Turn back to Romans 1 real quick. But if you're in Romans 15, keep your finger there or something, but turn back to Romans 1. I want you to look at 14 and 15 in this introduction where Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. If you have a New American Standard translation of that, it has a little footnote under that verb, under obligation, to mean that what Paul is saying here is, I am a debtor. I'm a debtor. The King James translation also puts it that way. If Paul is a debtor, the question we should ask is, who is Paul in debt to? Well, verse 14 says he, he, he wants to go to Greeks and to barbarians. So he's in debt to all kinds of Gentiles who have not heard the gospel. What is it that he owes these people? Well, by the context, he owes them the gospel. Verse 15, he's eager to preach the gospel. Verse 13, so that he may reap a harvest among the Gentiles. See, and that statement is going to make sense as you, you start to work your way through Romans. See, as Paul then argues that all mankind is under sin and deserving of judgment. And Paul received his salvation not because he was more worthy, not because he was more holy, but purely by grace as a free gift of God. So now, because he has found that free gift, he's in debt to everyone else. Not because he bought something from them, but because he was no different than them. He was judged, they're just as much as sinners and under condemnation as he was. So he owes it to the rest of humanity. He owes it to Greeks and to barbarians and to Jews and to foolish Gentiles, to wise Jews and foolish Gentiles, to people in, in places he's never been, like Spain. He owes them the gospel because they're no different than him. He was needy and he received the gospel. They're needy and he owes them the gospel. And then Paul concludes the letter on a similar note. Turn finally back to Romans 15. And look at verses uh, 8 and 9, where Paul says, For I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch. So Christ was, was faithful to come to bring salvation to the Jews as, as promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And 
That wasn't the only purpose. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So part of the reason Christ came was that the Gentiles, the nations, would, would glorify God would receive the mercy of God and glorify God. So that part of the gospel is, that to, is the purpose of the gospel is to be spread so that people from every tongue and tribe and nation of all the Gentiles would hear the gospel and glorify God for the gospel. And look at those slew of passages afterwards. Look at how the Old Testament, Paul says, pictured this. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So you see these, these passages, they're declaring that the promise of the gospel is meant to be taken to the Gentiles, to the nations, to every tongue and tribe and people. Why? So that God would be worshipped for what he has done in the gospel. I love John Piper's book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad. He starts out by saying that missions exists because worship doesn't. Why do we do missions? Why, why, are we, why are we focusing on missions like we should be in this wonderful opportunity in Missions Month? Piper's right. This is what the argument of Romans. Missions exists because worship doesn't. You, Paul says, I have the gospel. You have the gospel. We owe it to those people, and especially to those places who have no access to the gospel. We owe it to them, and we owe it to God because God is worthy of their worship. God is worthy of being known as he is in those places. That the gospel is inseparable from a call to missions. See, for Paul, the mission to unreached people, where, where Christ has not been named, where there is no gospel witness, was, in, was, was distinguishable from the gospel. You're not saved by doing missions, but is inseparable from the gospel. For Paul, he's saying, if you've been affected by the gospel, you will feel a debt to make sure that the gospel is known by every tongue and tribe and nation. So according to Paul in Romans, there's no such thing as a gospel church that's not driven to gospel mission to the unreached. That's what we're celebrating with Missions Month this month. That the, that, that, that the gospel we read about and we sing about and that we've seen this morning in communion, that we would have so much joy in that gospel, right? If we understand that gospel, we'd have so much joy in that gospel that it would overflow out of us that we would want to see Christ be known where he has not been named. Those places that have no access to the gospel, that we'd want them to have the gospel. That's what the gospel does. It not only saves me personally, it not only saves me into God's people, but it, it saves me into God's purpose for him to be known where Christ has not been named. Gospel experience is inseparable for gospel mission. I did the best I could as I tried to show the whole book of Romans in one sermon. Because I don't want us to, to lose, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Now, I got to confess something to you guys. I grew up as a city boy, and I didn't really look at trees or forests much as a city boy. In fact, when we went on vacation to the forest and trees, I'd much rather stay in the cabin. So sometimes that illustration, I read all these beautiful pictures of illustrations about how this is important, because what is it like to get lost in the forest? I never got lost in the forest. I didn't want to go in the forest. Sorry, Moros. But... You know, I, 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 I think about my own experience of this. I do remember one time we went on a vacation uh, to, to see where my dad grew up in Japan, and we uh, went throughout Asia. And, and I remember visiting the Great Wall of China. 
And I remember going on the Great Wall of China and just being able to see in detail just this amazing architecture and these stones and this history right in front of me, just, just right in detail right before me. But you know what makes the Great Wall the Great Wall? It's not the little details. It's the great details. What makes those little details so amazing is when you appreciate that that wall extends for 13,000 miles. It's only when you zoom out and see the picture as a whole does the perspective of those little details make sense. And and that's our study of Romans. That's what at least our hope of our study of Romans will be, that we're going to look at these little details but see how they fit into the glorious picture of God's gospel and his purposes for us as a church, that we would see how the gospel unifies. That that it's not just something we would learn on Sundays, but it would play its way out as we would become a more and more unified church as we love one another. That we would see how the gospel transforms, and we'd see how the the truths of the gospel empower this change to holiness as we follow King Jesus. And that we would see how the gospel commissions. That as we would study Romans, that we would see how this gospel with the joy that we have in studying this gospel, that joy is incomplete unless we would have that joy be shared by participants of every tongue and tribe and nation in the joyful worship of God who saved us through his glorious gospel of his son. Man, I, I hope that we would not miss the forest for the trees. In our study of Romans and our very Christian lives, to not get so focused on, on all the details that we forget that glory of the gospel that makes those little details so great. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and praise you. We pray that we would be people who would declare with Paul that we are not ashamed of the gospel, that we would understand the power of the gospel working in our lives to bring unity, to bring transformation to holiness, and and, and to bring purpose as we are are those who would support your mission to to places where Christ has not been named. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to study this book. We pray, Lord, that we would not be people who would miss the forest for the trees, but, Lord, that we would see the glory of the gospel of your Son in each and every verse that we read and study. In Jesus' name, amen.